Well, it is good to be with you up here today, uh, speaking. Pastor Ken has uh, put this together, and uh, we anticipate a, a good series. It's been a good time. I've got a glass of water here because I've had some that chest crud that's going around with everybody, and my voice is mostly okay, but once in a while I may need to take a drink, so I'll ask your pardon in advance for that. Uh, Pastor Ken said I'm going to be gone next week. Um, I'm not going to be raptured. Uh, <laughs> For those of you who believe in a partial rapture theory, um, uh, there's a church just east of Lansing that they're announcing that their pastor is leaving today, and I will be up there uh, ministering to them, and probably will be for a period of time. So uh, you can pray for that as God opens that door to, to minister and serve up there. We're looking forward to it. Uh, Monday evening, I um, watched a, a, an interview with Dr. Tim Keller. Many of you are familiar with Dr. Tim Keller. He's a recently retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, prolific author, best-selling author. Um, and during that course of the interview, Dr. Keller traced uh, a, 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 a significant shift in the attitudes of Americans towards Christianity and Christians and church. He said prior to the 1990s, roughly about that time, that being a Christian was a good thing. A God-fearing, church-going Christian, that was a good thing, and people looked on that positively. And then during the time of the 90s, that began to shift as attitudes changed, and it wasn't so much viewed positively, it just was kind of ignored. It just didn't matter one way or the other. It wasn't a mark against you, it was just, so what? And over the last 15 years or so, uh, that shift has dramatically moved to the left. And now, if you describe yourself as a God-fearing, church-going Christian, it's kind of cringeworthy, isn't it? Yeah. And what's, when's the last time you ever thought about using that to describe yourself to somebody who's not a believer? Um, the, the attitude is more negative. And we know this. We feel it. We sense it. Uh, in almost every place, Christians are increasingly pushed to the margins and, and said, you keep quiet in the public square. You don't have a voice. You know, you can't have a religiously informed view. You can't speak into the cultural issues of the day. And ours is now a majority secular culture. Um, a, a, a recent uh, Pew survey, for instance, uh, asked young people 18 to ages 18 to 30, uh, do you believe in God? Only 50% said, yes, I, I certainly believe in God. And the other 50% said, well, not sure to, I don't know if there is a God to, no, there isn't a God. So only half the people in America are convinced, of young people at least, there is a God. And it's important to note that while this shift is alarming to us and, and kind of scary in a lot of ways, um, we're not an oppressed, persecuted minority, minority like many in the world, right? I mean, we're not going to get thrown into jail for talking about Jesus. We're not going to be beaten up or shot or... That's not happening yet, but we do feel the disrespect. We feel the loss of influence. We know what it is to be labeled intolerant, bigoted, haters, seriously out of touch on the wrong side of history. We know what it is to have our opinions disregarded and 
disposed of and when we speak to moral issues to just feel that cancel culture move on. And Dr. Keller went on as he talked about these things to describe three ways that churches and Christians have responded to those cultural shifts. And he said one of them is to change the message, to soften or blur the the crisp lines of, of biblical morality to say, well, maybe this isn't so bad after all, and maybe we should be more accepting, and maybe this, and maybe the gospel, and maybe, and what they're doing is sucking the life out of Christianity and the biblical record and coming up with a Christianity that is really sub-Christian. It's no longer faithful to the Word of God. And within our tribe of evangelicals, we would call this the evangelical left. Um, that does not characterize Bethel, thankfully. A second strategy is what we might call Amish light. <laughs> In other words, we, we withdraw into insular faith communities. We huddle together on Sunday morning and have our fellowship and drink our coffee and go to our Sunday school classes and then sneak out into the world and hope nobody knows anything about us, you know? Um, we lament our losses and we're intent only on reaching the children of the faithful. So we have good children's ministry, good youth ministry, and all those other things, but we pretty much keep to ourselves. Um, it's a retreat into the past, fearful of con uh, contamination by the present. Japanese proverb says that the nail sticks up, gets hammered down. <laughs> and a lot of Christians and churches believe that, so they keep their heads down. A third reaction to our secular culture very different from this, uh, Dr. Keller describes this active engagement in cultural warfare through aggressive, often angry political activism. It's an attempt to regain power and influence by electing representatives and passing laws and getting leaders who are not only sympathetic to our convictions, but will put us back at the central place of our culture wh where we deserve to be. Um, one writer described cultural warfare as a polarized mindset viewing culture as territory to dominate. And this approach seeks to dominate the American culture with the Christian church. They're not giving up without a fight. It, it, the extreme edge of that polarized mindset is, <laughs> is illustrated by a banner I saw on a website that it said, it said God, guns, guts, and glory. Yeah. There's a movement called Christian nationalism that's also representative of this view, and they adv advocate for making sure that Christianity or, uh, has a privileged place in the marketplace of ideas. A and there's so much that could be said about each of these strategies um, and so many rabbit trails that we could go down. In fact, about everything I want to say this morning has a whole lot more that could be said. But hey, we got till six o'clock, so. <laughs> but I would suggest that all three of those strategies, changing the message, pulling into ourselves, or fighting cultural battles, falls short of what Jesus called us to do when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them baptizing them and teaching them to do everything I taught you to do. Yes. 
All three betray a subtle shift away from confidence in the gospel, raising the question, do we really believe that the gospel and the gospel alone has the power to reconcile lost people to God, that it and it alone is the only hope for the world? We're in a timely series, and I appreciate Pastor Ken planning these series and bringing them to us, entitled Gospel Optimism, The Power of the Good News. Everything we've done, when Pastor Neil talked about what is the gospel, when Pastor Ken talked about, you know, the whack you know, the 31 points in his sermon. I don't have 31 points. <laughs> My sermon is pointless. <laughs> That's not in the manuscript. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bethel is committed to the gospel. That commitment is the driving motivation behind this series. It's why we strive to follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. And our task this morning is to challenge one another with a proper confidence in the Bible. Yes. So pray with me, would you? Father, would you take these loaves and fishes and multiply them for our use and feed our souls and enrich us according to your grace and your mercy and your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. Where Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the academic? Where is the social influencer? Where is the media star? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that was a real mess. I mean, some people want to get back to the first century church. Well, I hope it's not Corinth. <laughs> because they were a mess. I mean, they were fighting over celebrity pastors. I follow Ken, I follow Leo, I follow, you know. <laughs> we're not celebrities, though. <laughs> but they were. Uh, they were petty, they were immature. They flirted with cultural idolatries, so the idols of their, that filled their, their, their city. Uh, some of them were dabbling with immorality. They were tolerating gross immorality. It was so bad, they said, Paul said, that Gentiles don't even do this kind of thing. And you put up with it? They were taking each other to court, so their, their marriages were, were messed up. They were getting divorced and all kinds of things going on that way. They were selfish and prideful and the thing that was kind of unique about all this is they wanted to show off their spirituality by their super spirituality as evidenced by some of the spiritual gifts that they had. Uh, in other words, they were a mess. They're pretty much like us. 
And as Paul jumps into this mess, he begins by squaring away one foundational issue, the gospel. And in chapter 15, he'll say, I make known to you the gospel that I preach, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried. Christ died for our sins. Five words. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But there's so much packed into that. Christ died for our sins. Um, <laughs> your sins, the ones that maybe keep you up at night or wake you up at night, the ones that as you think about what you did, you just kind of cringe inside and feel shame, that, that bind you sometimes. All of those sins, the whole sorry record of our sins, and I, I was thinking about this week. I'm going to throw this illustration out. I, I was thinking about this week. When we're born, we're, we're born not having made any wrong choices. We're born with a predisposition to evil, the Bible says, and that's proved out empirically because one out of one children sin. <laughs> right? You know that before they're two. They have a will, and it's opposed to you, and it's opposed to God. And, and it's like they have this clean soul that, that just hasn't done anything yet. It's like a, this jumpsuit, this white jumpsuit that this child is born with, and they start doing things wrong. They, sass, they say no, they defy it, and so on like that. And every time they do, there's a little smudge that shows up on this jumpsuit. And they grow up, and they go a little bit further, and they go into school, and they steal a pencil, they do this, and another smudge, and, you know, it just kind of grows and grows. And on through junior high and high school and college and, and all the stuff that they do there, and, and the, it just grows. And, and you, you try and rub it off, and you can't. You know, you can cover it with other clothes, and people don't see it, and it looks good, but it's all this stuff. And all of a sudden, you're 50 or 60 years old, and you've been accumulating all this moral filth. And someday you're going to have to stand before God and say, what happened to that white soul I gave you? Yeah? Jesus comes, and he says, give me that, and you take mine. And he puts it on, and he wears it to the cross. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins, and he proved, it was proven by the fact that they buried him. You don't bury people who fake death. They don't stay there for three days. And that he was raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures, as evidenced by the fact that he was seen by many. In fact, 500 believers all at once, Paul says, some of them are still alive. They can bear testimony of the fact that they saw Jesus Christ alive in the flesh after the resurrection. In other words, God vindicated what Jesus did, Death could not have any real hold on him, so he paid for our sins. He's raised from the dead. He's alive. He's at the right hand of God. These brief words hold so much content for us. Paul insists that this gospel, this good news, offering pardon for the wrongs that we have done and making saints out of sinners makes no sense to the world but it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the heart and the soul of Paul's message. And that's why he, he didn't come to Corinth with what he describes as words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't come to you 
preaching this, this marvelously attractive, winsome gospel. And, and that would have had per- particular significance to his readers because the, the Corinthians uh, celebrated uh, philosophers and orators who possessed spellbinding power to captivate an audience. They were the rock stars of the first century. They were the ones who drew the crowds. They were the ones who were the MVPs of the age. And Paul would have known such celebrities as sophist. The word comes from the Greek word sophia, which means wisdom. Uh, One of their critics says, they're all agape for the murmur of the crowd. Like men walking in the dark, they move always in the direction of the clapping and the shouting. I know some politicians like that. Sophists were more concerned with ingenuity than truth. They knew how to work a crowd, and they each had their own following. And Paul doesn't come as a celebrity preacher out to get a following. That's not what he came to do. He didn't adapt the message to gain accessibility. That would have robbed the gospel of its power to rescue people who were perishing and and reconcile them to God. Bible scholar Gordon Fee writes that the preaching of the cross is the great divine contradiction to our merely human ways of doing things. Not a great phrase, a great contradiction to our merely human ways of doing things. God, Paul insists, takes the wisdom of the world and stands it on his head. Most today, if they believe God exists, believe that God is a God of their own making, really. Um, a God fabricated out of our own cultural expectations about what a good God ought to be. Um, a God who makes sense on our terms. He's a therapeutic, feel-good God, a deity who doesn't much interfere with our pursuits and doesn't hold us accountable for our mistakes and misdeeds until we do something really, really, really evil. But basically, good people like us get the better place option. But they don't know God. Because the world in its wisdom does not, cannot know God. Our, our contemporaries are like the Jews and Greeks of Paul's day. Jews demanded signs. They were anticipating a Christ, a Messiah, who was going to come and lead them in triumph over the Roman legions who invaded their country and, and reestablish Israel as the top dog in the, in the world. They expected a Messiah to come with power and So they wanted a sign. They wanted to know that God is still doing miracles and he does them for us. They were expecting a King David on steroids. (laughs) The the, the Greeks, Paul says, the Gentile world, um, want wisdom. By the way, there are people today who want something similar to signs if they're going to believe in God. In fact, I I just finished a, a wonderful book. It's called Surprised by Oxford. Uh, a young lady who went to Oxford to get a doctorate in English literature and <laughs> ended up becoming a Christian over the course of this, and it was a wonderful thing, in part because Susie and I had been to Oxford in April and saw it, and so I could just identify with all these things that she's seeing. But it's a wonderful story of her conversion. But one of her friends said, if there is a God, why doesn't he prove himself? Why didn't he show himself? Why didn't he do something? They want a powerful, tangible sign of God's reality. Others want a reasonable God who makes sense. They, they, they're pursuing wisdom, and they think God ought to be acceptable to our rational minds. 
Now, tractable deity who meshes with our current fashionable thinking or who meets the expectations of our social influencers or, or media commentators and entertainers, a God who affirms our desires and passions. And the gospel proclaims a God, or Christ crucified. To the Jews, a Messiah crucified in weakness on a foreign occupier's cross. That's just the opposite of what they expected. And it was inconceivable. To the wisdom-loving Greeks, there's a crucified God. And you have to know the Greek gods were really weird people. <laughs> I mean, they were kind of really glorified humans on just... But they were passionate. They fought one another. They just... They were a mess. But they didn't much care about people. You had to kind of coerce them to get them to do anything on your behalf. A crucified God who dies for people? Made absolutely no sense. They didn't have the categories for it. I mean, you talk about the ultimate oxymoron. Dr. Fee writes that the Jews and Greeks here illustrate the basic idolatries of humanity. God must function as the all-powerful or the all-wise, but always in terms of our own best interest, power on our behalf or wisdom like ours. For both, the ultimate idolatry is that of insisting that God conform to our own prior views as how the God who makes sense ought to do things. The world and its wisdom did not know God. And so Paul says, but to those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, both sign seekers and wisdom demanders, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Corinthians needed a good dose of gospel confidence, and so do we. A, a, a conviction in the power of the gospel to transform lives that goes clear down to our toes <laughs> where we just get it. Because the evidence suggests that we're losing our grip. Yeah. There are reasons, I suppose, for our lack of confidence. We're afraid to talk to our neighbors and co-workers and family and friends about Jesus. We're afraid of alienating them um, alienating relationships that are important to us. We know that some are going to become angry or defensive, and that's why we don't talk about religion or politics and don't like people who do. We've already had en enough of rejection to, enough rejection to last a lifetime. We don't want any more. I get that. I feel that. Uh, we fear sounding stupid or exposed as foolish because we say something about, you know, the God word or the Jesus word and people kind of roll their eyes and kind of like we're not glib talkers like some we don't want to misrepresent the truth and we don't have all the answers we're not sure we know what to say better to say nothing that people think we're stupid than to open our mouths and remove all doubt you know that that kind of principle someone said silence is golden but maybe it's just yellow Jesus anticipated this when he warned his followers about not being ashamed of him and his message. That's something we've got to settle in our hearts. We fear failure. Risking the gospel conversation to only have our friend walk away unconvinced and then wondering to ourselves, what just happened? Did anything just happen? What did I do wrong? <laughs> right? 
Maybe we're super competitive and we hate losing an argument. And so come back here, we got you know. And it's not about winning them to Christ, it's about winning the argument. A must-win confrontation. I experience all of those fears. I really do. I have a hard time talking about Christ to people I work with and try and find out how to how do how do we turn the conversation this way. And that's why we need the power of God's Spirit. And we'll talk about that some more a little bit later on. Uh, to give us opportunities and boldness and clarity and all those other things. And Paul prayed for these things and asked for prayer. And he's the apostle. He wrote this stuff and he's asking for prayer. So how much more do we need this kind of stuff? But note how Paul concludes his chapters. For those of us who feel weak and insignificant and dumb and all those other things when it comes to sharing Christ. Consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. How many academic PhDs here? Uh, um, okay. Um, not many of you were powerful. Anybody powerful here in our world? Not many of noble birth. Well, I got that. I, one of my ancestors was on the throne to, or was supposed to succeed the throne in Scotland, but he was killed by Robert the Bruce, and we're still angry at him. <laughs> I was back in the 12th century. It's my claim to nobility. We're not the elites in our culture, are we? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let him, the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not about us. It, it's not our brilliance or erudition, or power, or charisma, or any of those things that's going to make the difference. It's the power of the cross. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God didn't look for movers and shakers to make up his kingdom, to be his witnesses in the world. He didn't enlist the people at the top. There's a few. Paul acknowledges, but not many, and I'm thankful for those few. I'm thankful for people like Tim Keller and Dr. Gordon Fee, who I've, whose commentary, I, among others, that I um, have consulted. Andy Stanley, others. Um, women like Amy, or Ann Voskamp and Nancy Lee DeMoss, and they're everything we're not. I mean, they're outstanding, they're larger than life, they're attractive, they're poised, they're articulate, they're winsome. Not me. <laughs> oh, they're the few. Most of us are among those who Paul calls the weak and foolish and lowly and disregarded. And I can identify with that, can't you? The basket of deplorables. <laughs> One critic of Christianity 
and Christians wrote this, as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, and anyone who is a child, let them become Christians. But the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish and dishonorable and stupid. Guess who said that? Do any names come to mind? <laughs> you probably think of a few in the news that might have said something like that. It was a Roman by the name of Celsus and who lived about 175 AD. It's been around for a long time, folks. This isn't new to us. We're the littles for whom God seems to have a preference. Isn't that good news? God chose us and called us to be His, and He sends us into the world to lead quiet, ordinary lives of steady obedience and faithfulness, to love each other deeply from the heart, to do good for those around us, to be faithful in our marriages, wise and good in raising our children, to have children nurtured in the good news of Jesus who are responsive to their parents, to have confidence in our witness in the saving grace of Jesus that that is the only thing that is going to bring people to faith in Christ. Amen. To rescue people who are spiritually perishing. This does not mean that the gospel is going to give us power to triumph in every conversation. That's not the kind of power we're talking about. In fact, most of the people we share Christ with are probably going to be non-responsive. Um, Jesus himself taught that there are at least four ways that people respond to the gospel. Some of them is like golf balls bouncing off concrete. <laughs> and they just walk away and nothing happens. Satan takes that word and he takes it out of their heart and they just go on their merry way and it just doesn't penetrate. Some, Jesus said, uh, respond quickly, but they don't last because there's no root. There's a superficial response to the Bible, and they get all excited, and then something bad happens. They say, well, that's it, and they throw in the towel. Some people become Christians. They begin to grow, and then they're just kind of distracted by the world and all kinds of other stuff, worries and money and all these other things and entertainments, and they just, the, <laughs> the gospel never bears fruit. And some, Jesus said, it penetrates their hearts and they flourish and become fruitful followers of Jesus. We've got to expect that not everybody's going to receive this message, but for those who believe, whom God uses our witness to call to himself, it's the power of God to rescue them from condemnation and separation from God forever, to forgive their sins, to transform their lives, to begin them on the road of becoming more like Jesus Christ. The one thing we must settle is our confidence in the gospel to do that. Do we really believe the message of a crucified Christ can penetrate sinful hearts and minds and bring people from death to life? This isn't a doubt we talk about much, but I've experienced it and I still do sometimes. I, I look at some of the people around me and think, it would take a miracle, <laughs> right? Guess what? takes a miracle. It takes a miracle of grace. It took a miracle of grace to change your heart. Okay?
When I was in seminary, I was introduced to a hymn whose folk origins go back to New England after the Re Revolutionary War. When I first heard it, I thought it was a contemporary song because of the repetition. <laughs> and that was back in the olden days when we were still using King James English in our worship songs. But the first verse reads, verse reads like this. I love thee, I love thee, I love thee, my Lord. I love thee, my Savior. I love thee, my God. I know why I thought it was a contemporary song. <clears throat> I love thee, I love thee, and that thou dost know. But how much I love thee, my actions will show. Boy, that's, a, that's just a subtle, subtle reality check in that last line. I can say the words, but how much I love, my actions will show. What we most truly believe, the deepest convictions in the core of our souls will show up in our words, but they must show up in our behavior or our conduct or we give the lie to our confession. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do you believe that? then trust it. Don't adjust it. Don't hide it under a sanctified bubble. Accept no substitutes. Let me offer a few practical next steps. I think Pastor Ken next week is going to be talking more about how do we do this, but just a couple of things that we can do. First, <laughs> Psalm 103, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then David rehearses some of God's benefits. Rehearse to your own soul the power of the gospel and how it saved you. And what God did when he called you from darkness to light, from death to life. How he began a process of transforming you from the inside out. What miracle of grace did God work in you when, when he called you to himself? And then relearn what it is to be amazed by grace. There's a verse that I have uh, puzzled over for a long, long time, and I just, I just got a glimmer of an insight into it uh, through one of the books that I'm reading right now. But um, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. How is it that God's forgiveness is going to increase my fear of God? I would think that there is forgiveness with you that you may be loved, right? And, and, and the insight that somebody else suggested, in fact, it was Tim Keller that suggested it, is that when I come to the, the holiness of God, and I see God in his majesty and glory and power and greatness and all of those things, and I come to him with my guilt and my sin, and I realize that this God is forgiving me. God gets really big, and the awe of God is transforming. There's forgiveness with it that you may be fear. Learn that. Be amazed by grace. And secondly, pray. Turn over to Colossians chapter 4. 
Um, one of my favorite books of the Bible, Colossians. And this just kind of a touchstone verse for me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open, us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. Take those words and turn them into prayer. The Apostle Paul is asking for opportunities, an open door to talk about Jesus. Okay, ask God for opportunities to talk about Jesus. Not a battering ram to break down doors. Now, I, I've, I've heard some incredible gospel stories. I'll tell you one. I can for precedence. Um, this is a pastor I knew in Eastern Oregon who had been a logger, and he was a big man. I mean, a, a John Bunyan kind of a guy. And he told me how he got saved. And the pastor had come to his house one night, and he was sitting there watching television and drinking a beer. And the pastor began to share Christ with him. He says, I don't want to listen to it. And the pastor just kept talking about the gospel. And he says, I've had enough. And he turned the TV off, and he got up and went into the bathroom, reversed his teeth, and went into the bed. And the pastor followed him down the hall. <laughs> guy got into bed, pulled the covers over his head, and the pastor continued to share Christ with him, and he came to Christ. Now, I don't recommend that. <laughs> you better be led by the Spirit of God in ways that you're not used to being led by the Spirit of God if God calls you to do something like that. <coughs> but for God to open a door to have a conversation about Christ, yeah. we can ask God to do that. And then when he opens that door, that I may declare it. That I might open my mouth to say something. In other words, boldness. And then that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Gospel clarity. And then Paul says, walk in wisdom towards those outside, making the best use of the time. Wisdom to know how to conduct yourself around unbelievers and to know how and when to take advantage of opportune moments. And then let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, a gracious tongue that makes the gospel winsome. And may I add, ask God to con convict you if you're given to snarky, sarcastic quips and quotes about politicians or moral issues, because they further alienate people that we need to win to Christ. Don't do that. I just unfollowed a, a, a friend of mine who's a, really a, a, a wonderful believing Christian. But the stuff he puts on his Facebook post just drives me nuts. I said, I can't, I don't, I don't want to see this anymore. Don't do that. These are all great gospel prayers, aren't they? If you want something to do, you can get on your knees before God and start, here, pray this. And then third, do some work and think yourself clear about the gospel. You can start with what Paul said, Christ died for our sins. 
You can memorize that, right? Say it with me. Christ. There you go. I'll just unpack that. John 3, 16. Can you say that? Go ahead. For God. That's the gospel. Okay? Just talk about that. Right? God doesn't expect you to be an erudite theologian. He doesn't expect you to be fluent in your eschatological predilections or your epistemology or that kind of stuff. But we can know the gospel. And we can talk about it like we know it because we've been transformed. You can tell your story. Maybe just a suggestion for the church office. There's, there's a number of YouTube presentation on how to talk about the gospel. Maybe we just send an email to out with some of those links and just click on it and say, okay, here's, here's a model. Here's something. Become gospel fluent. We preach Christ crucified. Christ died for our sins. A stumbling block to sign seekers. Folly to rational wisdom seekers. But to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Dear God, give us grace to regain our confidence in the gospel and to become the witnesses you have called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we do at Bethel when we dismiss the service is we have some folks come forward and they'll stand in the front here. And if you have a need or if gospel appeals to you, if you've heard it this morning and say, you know, I, I need to know more about this, they'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, Mark Havisto is going to come and dismiss us with a benediction and then we'll be dismissed. Mark.